you and I one day were in the new office of John Law in Bishop Square, and you looked out of the yes. window and you said, good heavens, right on the approach to, I don't know where it was, was it zero now, the grass? Yeah, and you said it brought back to you a memory of a fairly hairy occasion in a 110 yes. which had caused you uh, quite a severe control problem and you, you told the story and I thought God I wish I could have got my <laughs> I wish I could have got that done it was so <laughs> lovely I mean it wasn't a line shoot it was just uh, your what account, happened your account on a very interesting event. There's that. There's the, the 108, which... What? Well, the one... Well, the 108... Where, uh, yeah, where um, I was doing some stalling work. You looked out of the... And I spun. It, it, instead of just stalling, and either dropping a wing slightly, or um, dropping its... No, it didn't drop its nose, but... Um, where I had to push the stick forward to make sure that it didn't stall properly. Instead of recovering, it fell over sort of sideways and forwards. I found myself in it going like that onto my back and into a spin. And we had anti-spin shoots fitted. Somewhere about seven, eight thousand feet, I think, stalling. That's uh, I used to do the low speed stuff. Uh, not higher than that, and not much lower. It took me totally by surprise because an aeroplane I've never known, been in an aeroplane, that had gone over. Instead of going down and over or rolling over, it went over completely sideways. And looking out the side, that was the way I was going. Well, I'd never known an airplane that went like that. And it went straight round into a spin. Well, I'd got the anti-spin shoes, because I was by then upside down going round, and uh, looked out uh, when I, there was a button to press or a lever to pull to stream these things. And they both came out, and I looked both wings uh, going round upside down. And to my horror, Almost as soon as these parachutes came out, the tip vortex spun them around, and I saw both of them closing up on their well, proper uh, string, and they closed right up. And as far as their effect, useless. Uh, they didn't do anything at all. And I thought, oh God, it's up to me. There's nothing else except fiddle with full rudder because that's the only effective control I had. And I was able to slow the, the, the spin down, and it stopped. Meanwhile, I got my flaps fully down, the wheels, because I was doing it as a, as a landing thing, uh, upside down. Uh, I wasn't worried about those and the spin. Uh, and I then recovered, in the last half, what was a, would have been a loop. I mean, I was upside down, and spin stopped. And I recovered, and uh, by then I suppose I was 3,000, 4,000 feet, not far from Hatfield. And, um, oh God, what a performance. Back to Hatfield, and I just carried on back. 
went and landed in Hatfield. There's no harm to the aircraft. But I was pretty astonished. And of course, I, uh, as soon as I got back into my office, I rang up Farnborough and I said, Look, your anti-spin shoots failed. They wound themselves up almost immediately in the tip vortex. So we're useless. And they said, Ooh, well, uh, we, we'll follow this up. And of course, what actually happened was our own Hatfield design people and Farnborough failed to realize that if you put a, a spin chute on the thing, it must have a swiveling attachment. These were fixed. So, you know, very simple. Uh, yeah. If it's swiveled, it would inflate. Yeah, yeah, it would inflate and it yeah. would um, slow the thing down or uh, yeah. produce some drag. And um, I thought, oh, so much for RAE and uh, anti spin chutes. Um, they either didn't make it clear or I designed people. What? 108 was that. That would have been 283, the low speed. You see, when Jeffrey was killed, he was killed in TG306, which is the uh, high speed wires. TG283 had permanently fixed open slats yes. on the leading edge. Mm. And that was the then that I inherited when Jeffrey was killed. And um, I had nearly a year's work on low-speed investigation research, uh, bins and fences and slats and oh God knows what went on there, to learn all could be learned from that sort of layout. So that was TG283. And then the VW120. And then VW120 was the rebuilt. And the first aeroplane had you'd ever produced with an ejection seat. Yes, I was going to say, you didn't have an ejection seat. No, no, you didn't have it. just two, sat on a parachute. 283. 283, yeah. And that survived all our year and a half low-speed work and uh, right up to when we handed it to Farnborough, who sadly got caught out uh, almost exactly as I was caught out. They lost a the test pilot. Yes. Uh, Doing the same uh, thing. Yes, why they continue. Well, they just wanted to find out themselves, I suppose. And it had and this totally pop up uh, on by then, presumably. Yeah, but he. Well, the same thing happened to him. Maybe not exactly the same way it went in, but mm -hmm. um, he decided to abandon it. There was still no ejection seat in it. And uh, either clobbered the fin or was too late getting out. The whole thing came down from the near Blackbush, pretty close to Farnborough. I wanted to ask you about the takeoff aboard at Hatfield, because you. Oh, yes! Again on the. Uh, on the grass overshoot on the St Albans end. And you ended up near the three horseshoes or something. Well, no, uh, the concrete runway was 6,000 feet that we had. I had to put back onto that runway. Uh, because the power controls or something had gone astray and that and uh, went whizzing off. Well, I got back onto the runway uh, safely and smoothly and realized I was going off uh, on the St. Albans end. But by the grace of God, the 108 had fairly high pressure tires and thin wheels and it was soft earth. And the deceleration was marvellous. Uh, it shot up. I wasn't going to pull the wheels up because I thought maybe I'll slow down the hedge. 
that was before the days of the instrument landing system because we had an ILS installation and that had something on that overrun that would have damaged an aeroplane on the carriage but no, this slowed it down and it was marvellous the thing remained stationary stuck in the mud still on the grass extension that was quite considerable what was up to that? what was the... oh, it was... Um, was it 283 again? That was 283. The power controls, we had no um, centering or the friction system had, had been um, altered in some way so that when I moved the stick, uh, when I, as soon as I got into the air, I had some fairly... We used to have a centralising arrangement. I've forgotten exactly whether it was a spring, I think it was, that would give you a centre point of the controls mm. if you took your hands off. Mm. Well, some strange reason this arrangement had got fouled up and there was no centering whatsoever. There was no datum that one could feel. And I realised that uh, this wasn't right at all. Something's happened to the friction in the system. And I must go back on the ground before I get into further trouble. Was this something you could would have, a pre-takeoff control check wouldn't have found this, presumably? Or perhaps I shouldn't ask. Well, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, thinking back, um, uh, one would have thought perhaps yes, but in some way I was convinced it, it wasn't. Uh, maybe I'd been used to flying the aeroplane. Um, I didn't get the response from the control system that I should have had as soon as I got off the ground. Exactly why, I can't recall that. But to me, that's right, back onto the ground. And uh, the fact that I was going to whiz off the end of the runway, uh, at least I was safe on the ground. What point on the 6,000 feet were you when you were decided to? Oh, I suppose I would have been about only a third of the way down, off into the air. And it's as soon after I'd come off the ground that, that uh, I realised, no, this isn't right. Back onto the ground. Was the aeroplane damaged? No, no, not at all. I remember Fred Whale was the inspector who looked after it. He said, oh, no, no, it's fine, it's good. <laughs> the um, uh, deceleration, the, the thin wheels and sinking into the ground. What, you climbed out and walked back, or did you? Somebody oh, I think someone came down because I was stationary in the far end and a, a van or something <laughs> appeared. <laughs> yes. The other 108 story really was the high speed side of things. Yes. I always admired the way you went through what Jeffrey had been through hey. again. And it wasn't a very pleasant Thing to have to no, one did it by extremely small steps, increasing mm. speed and performance. I was well aware that it was uh, probably the most efficient and clean wing that uh, we'd ever flown. On the Goblin, which was a relatively low-powered engine, the 108 was able to achieve, if I remember rightly, about 0.88 level at 35,000 feet which was a high mark number, not diving, on a goblin was nominally just under 3,000 pounds. Yes, static, it's a sea level. Yes. yes. 3, Amazing performance. But if you had any turbulence, the damping of 
that in, in pitch was dreadful, virtually not quite nil, but, um, and that of course was the real problem, that uh, a combination of high ASI and high Mark number, which Jeffrey experienced low down in turbulence, the whole thing upended and the wings came off simply because of the nose down or? Uh, yeah, in Jeffrey's case I think it was the nose went down and the wings went off downwards. But uh, I was aware that it wasn't going to need very much to upset the whole thing and as far as I was concerned it was hopeless thought of, of having a large tailless aircraft or any tailless aircraft but trying to find out at what point the stability became negative as opposed to having some pitched stability in turbulence. And this was liable, you, you could see and feel immediately that it had got no real stability and hazardous and ludicrous to go beyond, very much beyond where we went, where Jeffrey was. Uh, so you went up high? Too. Yes, we did our work at 35,000 feet and and eventually John Derry, when uh, his went out of hand to get supersonic, you had to go down and dive. But he nevertheless started up high. You went through the same mark number that Geoffrey was killed at? Well, yes, maybe the mark number, but not at the same speed. Not the same ASI. No. Yeah. High ASI. Yes. Did you get we, a lot of turbulence? Oh, yes, yeah, varying times. Uh, yeah. And that's why I said, oh, no. As far as I'm concerned, no thought of any development with uh, comets, for instance. That was the point at which you advised that the comet should have a tail thing. Oh, I advised uh, immediately I flew the 108. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fish and Clarkson, uh, mm. as far as I'm concerned, not a hope in heaven. But there was a lot to be learned from the swept wing and so on. And of course, the uh, 110 was nothing other than the 108 with a large tail, which was immediate conclusion I come to um, in that sort of layout and that swept of tailless thing. How many of these, shall we call them, post Jeffrey flights did you do, high speed flights? Did you a lot of hours doing that? Oh, yes, yeah, I think John Wilson records it. And if you if you look at that logbook, it's very largely 108, and it says okay. what they're all about, the flights of 1940. This was VW-120, of course. Ah, uh, uh, yes. yes. Well, Did you enjoy this sort of flying, or was it tempered well, it was, with, a, uh, was it a, so tempered with a sort of uh, well, dread of what I, might... No, I wouldn't say I enjoyed flight. it, but I was determined to uh, find out all that we could find as to what had actually gone on and um, caused Jeffrey's death. But m most of my flying, the first nearly a year on t before VW-120 came on the scene, which was in July, I think, 1947. Yeah, VW-120, first flight, July 24th. You see, on the 24th, the same day, on the 108, I'd flown the 108 T83 trim curves, I noticed before, on that, the 24th, the date on which the 108 
VW and Tintin, first flight. And that coincided with the same day, the first flight on the Ghost Lang, VM 703, 24th July. Those are versatile days, aren't they? Yes, because um, not many people had the opportunity or experience of uh, driving these different aeroplanes or flying them, and all to a good purpose. That was for the ghost engines, of course. You asked how many flights of the high-speed ones. Well, it's from then onwards. I see August handling. And I alternate with 283 stalls with wing fins. 108, 120, 35,000 feet, mark 83, it says here. And then the next flight, same day, on T83, stalls. So it was one or either of them. Full envelope. Yes. Yeah. And did you designate Derry and Wilson to do 108 work while you... Yeah, to take part. And uh, for, uh, I had... Uh, oh, Dim Races. That was August 47. 100 kilometer close circuit record. Mm. There. That was August 31st. Lim. That was a sign of confidence in the, in the high speed stability of the 108. Oh, entirely, yes. Yes. Well, that was did that record, didn't he? No, that was, was the that first good? one I did. Oh. Uh, 100 kilometers. He then did on VW 120 the same. Uh, not the same circuit, but uh, the same distance. He mm. got a much higher speed than my 496 miles an hour. He did like 600 or 590 or something. But I think on that occasion yeah. there was concern about turbulence, wasn't there? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I flew, um, flew before, went round the course at high speed to check for turbulence before John went round. But, um, I did it in a horns vampire or venom, whatever we had check for turbulence and I was happy that it was well, should be all right and John went round with the 108 and that was a, a circuit round between Luton and round the Hatfield area. Even so presumably it must have been fairly marginal obviously he was trying to get the very best speed he could out of the aeroplane and taking oh. into account what you had found about 30 minutes previously or something. Oh, yes, yes. So it must have been quite sort of... Uh, but it was uh, fairly reasonable. It was uh, not the sort of weather that should have caused any upset no, at all. No. The type of weather, apart from the actual turbulence and I experienced. John Derry actually got Mark One indicated, didn't he, in a VW120? Yes. yes. Which was, I think I'm right in saying, was the first aeroplane to take off and land under its own I think so, yes. To touch Mark 1. Yes. First in the world. Yes, I think so. That was true. Because all the American things would fall, drop from... Drop, drop uh, B-52. Uh, yes, B-52s. Yes. Oh, very much so. And, um, so Hatchfield yes. Runway was the first runway in the world to launch and recover a, a, a supersonic flight? Yes. Yes, I think that's true, to launch and recover. Because English Electric must have followed uh, some few years later. But you were Derry's boss. Yes, uh, I got... And you knew what he was doing. Oh, entirely. I didn't control him so much as he worked out what he wanted 
do and the way he was going to do He would consult you oh, on he, what he was doing? And yeah, well, he, he knew, he and I were both keen to learn all that could be learned from the best performers out of BW120. So that flight, when he did touch Mark One, that was no surprise to you. You were expecting that, that had all been planned and discussed. And well, it was all part of the program, yes. Yeah. And um, one was grateful to thank God that nothing more disastrous happened. No, it was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it, not very clever uh, from the point of view of control of an aeroplane. Uh, well, he had problems in the recovery of the aeroplane from a dive, but that was a feature of the aeroplane, and yes, not surprising. Did he roll out? No, he didn't. He, no, he didn't no. roll out at all, no. He recovered from a... Yes. I think John's description, which is in... Is it Matthew's? That 108 book. Yes. yes. Gives a picture of what, what really went on there. Yeah, the, the but you gave him a pat on the back for that, presumably. Oh, well, yes. thank God. Yes. Thank God he, he's got no disaster. No, John was a, a very fine chap and a very fine pilot. To come back to the 110, can you remind me of that lovely story you told in Bishop Square office? Oh! All I do remember about that story, as far as I can think, was we had trouble with directional problems with the rudder, and Bish said, well, I want you to fly with the rudder locked, which meant if an engine stopped, well, I'd have to stop the other one and uh, return, or I would accept that if it stopped on takeoff, I'd be badly placed. So the rudder, I think, on this occasion was locked. And the reason I landed on the grass runway was because the wind was across our runway. And um, yeah, I had to land and take off into wind. I was aware of that, and so I you had to use the grass runway. That's the only reason I was on there. Was, as far as I recall, the rudder was locked to enable the air handling to be exercised, had to be gone through with the rudder locked. There was doubt that the rudder was um, perhaps movable or moved. So that was the only reason, as far as I recall. Could you tell us about the other 110 story that I delightedly recall you telling once about a power failure over Heathrow? Oh, yes. Yes, that's a extraordinary. This was... Rotax, I think, used to produce our electrical power generation for the 110. Lucas and Rotax, they were the same, weren't they? Yes. And the 110 had uh, these two Avon engines, and each one uh, had its generator, and there were generator failure warning lights up in front of me. Very early in the flying of the 110, I suppose I'd only flown it a few times. I don't know, I could tell you, I mean, like three or four times. And we were in the early stages of uh, preparing to measure the performance and the height of the aeroplane. And I used to then fly, generally, there were no restrictions on control of where you went in the aeroplanes uh, in that era. 
above 20,000 feet. Well, we were flying 35,000 and used to go from overhead Lake and Heath, which was a long runway up sort of northeast of Hatfield, to Boscombe. And I'd go between the two, just broadly, as having a big aerodrome at both ends. In case you had to put it down. In case there's any reason to go down. And I'd uh, gone towards Boscombe at about 35,000 feet in that general direction. And I turned around. Uh, no, as I got down the Boscombe end, a red light came up in front of me and generated failure. And, oh, so uh, I was uh, about to turn around anyway to come back towards Lake and Heath and, uh, to carry on doing. I think it was, uh, it's in the book somewhere, whether it's that one, temperature calibration, 35,000 feet. Prior to, I mean, the instrumentation had to be checked out and so on. And the 110, clever arrangement, uh, <laughs> I don't say clever arrangement, <laughs> everything worked electrically, which I, I was never keen on all that. All the flight instruments, all the engine instruments, naturally, the intercom, and um, the fuel pumps, and the wing, the, the fuel system on 110, was, most of it was in the wing. Unlike Bish. Yeah, not really like him, but he didn't have much alternative, I think. But anyway, uh, fuel pumps in the wing, and there was one gravity tank behind the cockpit. There was a vertical tank that had, I don't know, 50 gallons or a small amount that the fuel from the wings was pumped into that tank and then went through into the engines. And it's all electrical. Well, just over halfway back from Boscombe, towards Lakenheath, I got a second red light. Oh, God. And uh, in the interest of lightness and so on, this clever new electrical system was supposed to be so foolproof that the capacity of the batteries to sustain this electrical demand was uh, about two minutes or less than that. Uh, when this second light came up. I had Tony Richards, my observer, he was down beside me, and of course at 35,000 feet I could only speak to him through microphone oxygen masks. I realized, Christ, this airplane's all electrical. Everything failed, all the engine instruments, all the flight instruments, and my intercom, and I couldn't even talk to Tony Richards. But just before that happened, I realized uh, I'm going to be speechless in a moment. I called Hatfield and got as far as saying, tell, uh, just before I did that, I looked up, where am I? Uh, I was above cloud, and there was a little hole in the cloud from which I just caught a glimpse of the runway at London Airport. And so that fixed me. I knew where I was. And I called Hatfield to say, tell London, I, uh, which my voice vanished. So I called Hatfield, that was Pilcher, uh, flying controller. I don't know, he was a marvellous man. He'd been my senior controller at West Morling during the war, and I eventually got him to Hatfield to run that. But I am pretty sure, well, London had no warning whatsoever, because my voice stopped, and I then thought, oh God, now here I am, 
Now, the fuel, the only fuel I've got in this thing... Oh, the tail trim was electrical. Um, and to counter the enormous trim change that the flaps introduced, if you were using flaps for anti fuel, because the electrics all failed, and presumably I, we hadn't gone anywhere to know whether there was a gravity feed. I don't think there was, because I think the wings were below the engines on the 110, if you visualize the aeroplane. So the fuel's got to have electrical pump to or it. So, so whilst working out the, the fuel supply... Well, it was it's just that I'm going to uh, keep these engines idling. I'm not going to do anything other than that. And I make my descent from 35,000 feet flatless for a flatless landing at London. You'd already decided that it and got speechless. to be flatless because... Oh, yes. Because yes. you couldn't I had no trim. You couldn't, couldn't hold the, the trim. I couldn't trim the tail anyway. I was clean, yeah, flying at height. The flaps were hydraulic? Or the, flaps uh, weren't, the flaps were hydraulic. They were. Mm. But the and tail the, trim the, wasn't. It's electrical. The uh, basic flying controls, the ailerons and the elevators, were hydraulic. Were hydraulic. All so hydraulic. Did have basic all flying controls were hydraulic. As long as I could keep the engines rotating, I thought, hmm, well, down we go. And it took quite a time, because I didn't die rushing down. I, I just wanted to get down reasonably quickly and hoped that I would um, position myself so when I broke cloud, I would be in the circuit vicinity of Heathrow and I'd have time to look around and see what was on the ground or what was coming into land or taking off. But I was going down regardless and I had made up my mind that even if the thing was on the runway, I was going to land alongside, because they were sufficiently wide, the runways. Uh, I was committed to gliding, you see, and doing S-turns. You weren't going to do a go-around, even though you Oh, no, no, not at all. No, I was uh, anxious to get it onto the ground before the engine stopped and I lost control. We were on ejection seats, so I wasn't going to lose the aeroplanes or jump out or anything like that. So, I broke cloud, and it was reasonable visibility beneath, and I decided I was on, what was, 2-8 left, I think. There were some hangers on the left that hunting or yes, some executive right. yes. um, setup. The maintenance area. Yes, yeah. maintenance area. And, uh, anyway, I made a good landing, flatless landing. The first one I hadn't had, uh, you see, one usually experience these things deliberately under your own control, in your own airfield. So I had to make the usual gliding S turns to position myself and um, land on the runway. And I, as it slowed down, I turned it off and went onto the grass where we stopped, almost opposite what was Hunting's hangar. Anyway, a fire vehicle came out, and I said, I'm sorry for this, but uh, <laughs> here I am, it's all's well, and uh, please, it's clear of the runway, it's not blocking it, and um, they recovered it to the hunting hangar. And um, that was the end of this tiny electrical battery in the interest of saving weight for this wonderful electrical power generation system that Lucas Rotax were producing 
absolute failure, as far as I'm concerned. And of course, to have everything, uh, well, the tail trim above all, electrical. So that became hydraulic. Did you see any other traffic? Oh, there was a Viking. You see, that was the days, I think, of the Viking. Yeah. I can remember one taxiing out. Uh, it was obviously leading up to going on this runway. Mind God, it wasn't upsetting me. But they must have been rather surprised because there would have been silence, you see, no voice. And what the air traffic thought, God knows. I mean, you didn't overtake anybody on the approach. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Wave to the camera. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I only thought, follow London Airport. They had a jolly good control system. Did they charge you a landing fee? I don't recall. Was that. there any comment? Or no, no, you see, I was uh, silent. Uh, everything was silent yes, yes. for me. And, uh, Did you go up to traffic control? No, no, because that's the other side of the airfield, and I was uh, Did you ring picked up. up. I apologise, or I sent my apologies, and sorry, total failure of electrics, mm. and um, sorry if I'm you weren't sort of intruding. No. come round. No. Was it built up in the, not much less built up in those days? I was thinking. No, not very much less. I think built up. Because you were making an approach over a pretty built up area, not a very pleasant place to have to consider oh, leaving there. No, there something not gone bad. Wrong. That approach isn't too well. Isn't it? As far as I was concerned, wasn't bad. Yeah. The interesting part of the incident is the descent, because yes. you were very high, and you had no instruments. No, and you had I only had an airspeed indicator and an altimeter. Which are non-electric. Non-electric. And you went through a fairly thick cloud? No, no, you see, I was in clear air oh. above, so you and from 35,000 feet, when I looked out, where am I? So you had visual reference. Uh, uh, there was a seven-eighths cloud there, nearly eight-eighths, with, by the grace of God, a little hole through which I instantly recognized a bit of the uh, runway at London Airport. That was very, well, very I, clever of you to recognize. Yeah, but I, one got used to knowing. You see, most of my flying was at 35,000 volts, heights, vampires and things, uh, endless flights from height. And one knew very often, well, at a glance, the ground underneath, or more or less where you were, by recognizing one particular item, in this case, at the London Airport. When you got out of the Wanwan area to hunting clan, did you... I was on the grass, and the fire people, they took me across, I think, in their van to um, the hangar. With Tony? Yes. yes. Yeah, because I uh, unable to speak to him until we had Tony. I, all I could do was point down to him. Had Tony realised what had happened? Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. But he he, he was uh, unable to be of any help to you. None at all. Yeah. No. <laughs> I also remember two early comet incidents, which I thought were very amusing, if not hairy. One was. Um, I haven't heard you tell it, but I've heard Tony Fairbrother. You've got some flutter. Oh, yes. And John Wimpenny was with me. This was a Sunday morning. In VG? Uh, in VG, flying from Hatfield. We'd had, during the previous flight, or previous one or two flights, a touch of um, flutter, or what I was convinced was flutter, on, I wasn't sure whether it was the rudder or elevator, Anyway, came from the tail end, uh, and um, 
we spent this hour and a half or so uh, on a Sunday morning because in those days the airplane, if there was work to be done, would be done during the week and at the weekend usually it was there, it's all yours, Saturday and Sunday, you can do your flying, then the works will be in on the week and they'll do whatever shop work is necessary. Anyway, came uh, the time of about, I suppose, lunchtime. I had some arrangement with, uh, we flew on a Sunday. The Comet had been briefed to um, accept us, flight crew, for lunch there for, for the firm to pay for. And I think I said, well, we haven't achieved this condition of flutter. We'd better go down now, because we'll have to get down across the common to have lunch at one o'clock or whatever time. And um, we were 30,000. We, we weren't sure whether it seemed to be sensitive to height as well. We were, had been the height that we felt we'd had this flutter before. I said, right, down we go, and uh, put the nose down. And I think I reduced the power slightly, but obviously increased the, or the speed or mark number changed and so on. And hardly had we got going downhill to lunch when the thing really took charge and uh, built up in a big way. And I pulled all the power and put the air brakes on, thinking, Christ, this is going to fall apart. I mean, it, 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 if I don't do something, it'll really break itself. Did you have parachutes? No. We didn't then, I think. No, because we had been flying for some time, but I don't... No, we didn't. And uh, John Wimpany was with me, because he was the flutter expert. He would be able to remember, uh, at least more clearly, or probably more scientifically than I could. But anyway, my concern was to slow the thing down, reduce it, and, and to uh, stop the condition that I'd just gone into and was about to go through. Uh, I thought, oh, thank God, then it began to die down, whatever the, the enormous flutter was. And I, well, still all under control again, and went down for land. And of course, see, there were external mass balance weights. Yes. On the one on the starboard side of the elevator had uh, either broken off or bent and it had torn the skin and it was clear it was elevator flutter yes. that had uh, caused this and we just escaped what I reckon would have been total disaster uh, a few moments later and that caused a rethink on the design of balance weights and rods to operate controls. The whole system of driving the elevator and rudder was um, then rethought and uh, much more robust rods to operate them. That was the worst flutter you experienced yes. on the Comet. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was, yes. yes. That's not a pleasant... No, because um, that's uh, an all-consuming, total destroying uh, operation in a fraction. I mean, uh, in time.
You saved it by just pulling back the power very quickly. Yes, being aware suddenly, Christ, I got the stone changed. I've gone into this condition, having spent an hour and a half flying to try and repeat it, level. And here am I coming down, relaxed now, saying, right, that's it, we're down to lunch. I suppose the obvious question is, did you get to lunch in time? Oh, yes, 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 we did. (laughs) Well, I can remember thinking, Christ, that's a close shave. So, um, pretty upsetting, I think, for Wimpany, whose task didn't normally include this sort of flying. Oh, John did fly on aeroplanes when crises came. You come and see. And they were always happy to do that, were they? John was. Some weren't? Oh, I know. I only asked John, I think. uh, No, he he was um, part of his business, really. Keenness and interest. And all something. Yes. Who was your co-pilot on that flight? Most probably Pete Boogie. I think he um, was. And was there uh, obviously Fairbrother? Tony was with me and, as um, test observer. Brax. Yes, I think Brax and um, probably Johnny Marshall. There are two other comet incidents which I've always wondered about. One was when you got a control jam. Yes. Because some ballast had fallen into the sheathing unit or something. And uh, Brax and and Fairbrother pulled it all out. They realized what had happened and went to the hatch in the floor, opened it, and pulled all these lead bags. Yes, they used to have ballast bags. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yes. um, We had ballast. Either it wasn't adequately secure. Securely held down, or you pulled some negative G apparently, and they lifted. Yes, I think that was it. And uh, we used to have anyone who was part of the crew had to occasionally shift ballast because we wanted to change the CG, and uh, if it wasn't properly secured, well, obviously this time wasn't. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes, one learns. Slowly, <laughs> if you survive, that is. <laughs> the other comet one, I remember watching the second Canadian Pacific yes. 1A doing tail scrapers. Yes. And you did this all day long because you were trying to reproduce what had happened at Karachi and what had previously happened to Captain Foot. Yes, at Rome. Champino. Uh, uh, yes. I felt very sad about that Canadian pursuit. Canadian pursuit, yes. Or sad for Captain Foote because he was blamed for that, wasn't he? Ah, but Foote, he knew perfectly well that a jet has to go forward at speed, to some speed at which it can be rotated and then lift off. Well, he did what uh, some of the less enlightened chaps did, which was to pull the nose up and uh, think he could drag it off as he had uh, so many of the, most of the four engine pilots did, take them off, owing to the slipstream from the engines being there and thinking they could rotate them and stagger into the air. Well, a, a jet, you couldn't do that. And foot perhaps not realizing that what he was doing, rotated the aircraft, and it was slow in its um, 
until the tail went on the ground, it would be much slower on its takeoff, or uh, take much longer to reach flying speed. And uh, he did that, in fact. The airplane was written off, although nobody was... No one was hurt. No, no all that happened was that he'd put the tail on the ground, mm. which had a leading edge which stalled, or semi-stalled, and increased the takeoff run enormously, well, yeah. considerably. Imagine who was in charge of the comet pilots. Later, he had to reassess foot. And uh, on his reassessment, that meant flying with him up and down the route a number of times. One of those times, I was on board, and in fact had to go on to do takeoff measurements at Livingston, halfway down Africa. And uh, foot was under surveillance on that flight by Mergendy. Uh, well, I had the use of the airplane in setting up cameras and doing all the takeoff performance stuff. And it was quite clear, Mergendy himself was a very straightforward chap, said, I'm sorry, Foot's not up to it. And um, he was put on the propeller things. Um, uh, this was some time after the Foot accident. Uh, no, he, he just was a rather... He over-rotated it. Uh, yeah, he, really, he didn't do what he was supposed to do, which was let the thing accelerate to a speed before pulling the nose wheel off the ground. When Charlie Penton, mm. wasn't it, at Canadian Pacific, yes. he crashed, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, in Karachi. In Karachi, he, and that was at night. Yes. And he had also scraped the tail. Yes, but uh, I... You see, Charlie Penton had been my instructor, VAC instructor, on Constellations in 1946. So I knew Charlie Penton well. When he left them to become chief pilot of Canadian Pacific, and they decided to have the comet, he came and then flew with me for instruction on the comet. I then demonstrated to him on Hatfield Runway exactly what foot had done and uh, we went down the runway tail on the ground grinding it off and i said look charles he was in the right hand seat i was in the left hand seat this is what foot did and his comment to me was holy jeez how on earth did he do that uh, he was a typical canadian and he was holy jeez he was known by us as holy jeez and um, uh, he said, he couldn't believe it that Foot had actually put the tail on the ground. And I said, well, this is what happened. And um, within two weeks of that incident on Hatfield, when he had taken acceptance of the aircraft delivery, what happens? He does exactly that on Karachi. Now, the reasons why he did it, uh, perhaps Karachi was, uh, there were no lights around uh, the airfield, no buildings or anything illuminated. No, no references. No references. And he had left Hatfield in the morning and flown through and continued directly without any, uh, no, he had a fueling stop in Beirut or somewhere to Karachi. And they didn't have sleep that night, but he decided to press on. He wanted to get to I think it was Singapore on his route to Australia. And um, 
he and the other chaps only sat in a chair and had a, a short ziz before going back into the aeroplane to set off for this takeoff. And he took off, or rather went out, not having been properly rested and um, pressing on. And there's the accident that he realized what he'd done because I went out the next morning and saw the marks on the scrape marks on the runway. And but he obviously realized from sound or feel, put the nose down, and you actually saw the nose wheels spin up marks and onto the sand and then coming off at the very end of the runway. Mm -hmm. And he got into the air, but much further down the runway. There's an obstruction. And, uh, yes, slightly rising ground and the starboard undercarriage or wing. No, it's not, I think, hit the obstruction, mm -hmm. which swung the aircraft slightly, and that was it. And it all stopped and went up in flames. And uh, that was the old holy geez. But uh, I couldn't do more than that. Except, of course, later, after that, in the inquiry and work that went on at Hatfield, this changed the leading edge section. Yes, yes. Uh, but you also did some more testing, didn't you, in the second CPA? Oh, I'm sure. But, I, uh, I remember seeing you doing these oh, yes. takeoffs with yes. the tail scraping the Hatfield runway. Yes, I'm sure a lot of work went on. I again all noted in the logbook there, I suppose. So the aeroplane, uh, with its changed leading edge, became foolproof in the sense you could put the tail on the ground and subsequently all our tests on development aeroplanes and tridents and so on had to go through this exercise and ARB or airworthiness requirements demanded it. Yes. Yes, I'm sad. Can you tell us of any other particularly interesting or anxious moment in any other aeroplanes that um, you particularly remember, with amusement, if not relief. Well, <laughs> the Mosquito 15 during the war. Now that was the lightened mosquito with increased span that was conjured up quickly to deal with the uh, 45,000 foot aeroplanes that had come over, or had come and dropped one two bombs in daylight. And um, everything was lightened, so that the cannons were taken out, and we only had four machine guns in front. Uh, the wingspan was increased, and the uh, elegant-looking aeroplane, uh, so that when you took off and flew, you actually could see the wingtips bending upwards, and um, everything could be lightened was, including the throttles. They were pretty dreadful throttles we used to have from the Merlin engines in the Mosquito. Uh, these were light aluminium castings, I think. I can remember that I received these two Mosquitoes for use when I was in 1943 at Hunston. The first time that uh, we'd had radar mosquitoes that go up to these heights and so we were going off to a pair of us um, 45,000 feet to do radar interception <coughs> sea falls were quite normal and worked well 
Well, I went up to take off power, moved forward, and um, as I went up to pull power, one of the throttles came off in my hand. So I was left at night uh, on takeoff with the full power in the air just off the ground and um, with only one throttle. And the other lightened bit, it had broken at its root. And um, God, now what do I do? Uh, I got the engines stuck up full throttle. I thought, oh well, uh, I'm in the air, I'm safe, at least. Now, uh, do I carry on or do I fiddle with this and try and see if I can put my finger down into the, to pull this thing back? And I thought, well, marvelous. This is a special lightweight throttles. Again, Hatfield's a desire for lightness. <laughs> and um, uh, I thought, well, yes, it's pretty unusual. Uh, they were changed pretty quickly, I think, those throttles, but um, that was one throttle only left in my control. The other one was stuck at full bore. I didn't mind that in the sense that I was in the air and I could turn the switches off if necessary. Yes. But um, Lovely. Did you put it down again? Did you in fact throttle back and switch it off? Uh, I think I, I'd have to refer to my logbook to know whether I carried on because the other one was in the air with me and we wanted to make sure that our radar worked properly up at 45,000 feet, which was a great departure for radar, yes. well, in an aeroplane. Maybe. So you probably went on with the mission? Well, I know, I know, we had a very successful radar marvellously clear picture, and uh, but whether that was that particular flight or later one. What mosquito did you say it was? A 15? 15. 15. Is mm. that a Canadian? Building? No, no, it was uh, built in England. They were, there were only five of them ever built. And it was a night fighter radar, night fighter? Yeah, it was basically a, a night fighter, as we had it, without cannons for weight saving, with only four machine guns beneath the nose, that fired forward. Yes, that, that, like the Mark II. Yeah, that was the only armament we had. Yeah. How would yes. you have landed the thing at uh, full throttle? You would have shut it down on finals, would you? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, I, um, uh, as I carried on, I must have managed to get the basis of the throttle moved. You were able to. Whether I did it with my finger or uh, something, get it back, but. Um, I remember the astonishment. It came off in my hand, you see, with the stalk on it. Oh. <laughs> uh, <lovely>. <laughs> There's a classic one of you and Jeffrey in the Moth Miner. Oh, very much so, yes. Um, That's the only time you bailed out, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and um, failing to remember to turn the switches off, because the engine, that was the only real lesson learned from that. You know, because having jumped out and both of us come out of it, CG changed and the thing came out of the spin and started, the engine started with no one in the aeroplane, throttles across the left open and um, uh, it roared around two 360 degree circuits beneath me. You saw it? Oh yeah, very much so, not only saw it, you heard it and saw it and watched thinking, Christ, this bloody thing going round. And it, eventually flew into a big oak tree. Um, 
and destroyed itself. So whereabouts was that? Uh, almost opposite um, mm. uh, Lammer Lodge, John John's uh, Wilson's place. Yes, that's the one that's photographed in the, uh, yeah. the book. Which yes. is there. You landed there, did you? Yeah, fairly close, yes. In very short walking distance from it, um, I came. You had a camera? Yeah, I had a camera, which is in my pocket, because under my harness, under the parachute harness. And uh, I used to carry a camera in case any unusual, interesting incident occurred. Such as that? Well, that was one, yes. Back to North Minor, yeah. it's a bit... Um, switch off when you're desperate to get out of an aeroplane that's oh, yes. doing yeah. mean, it would be very, very remarkable to remember to do a complete oh, yes. shutdown, wouldn't yes. it? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. There was no inclination that we were going to have any problem with the aeroplane after we departed. No, not a thought of it. No. It was a question of, well, mm. we've got a limited time. Let's get out of this fairly quickly. And Jeffrey turned around and said, get out, did he? No. I said that, in fact. Uh, Jeffrey said, there's no response. You have a go now to me. Yes. And uh, I said, no, there's, there's absolutely no response to the controls at all. This is where you've got to get out. I said that. This was Gosport too. Yes, yes, there's no electrics and no. thing then. And um, I, being smaller and in the back cockpit, much easier to get out. Uh, Jeffrey was very long-legged, of course, and in the front. So I was out and away well before he was, and uh, realizing that the thing was coming down almost vertically, rather gently, and I was going to fall beneath it, I would have to delay uh, so that it didn't come down on top of me. And uh, then pulled my parachute and thought, ah. And shortly after it came past me, fairly close with Jeffrey, only sort of about halfway out onto the wing. And he pulled his parachute. To me, it looked, looking down on him then, as though he pulled it while he was actually still on the wing. Then the parachute came out, and he then went out of my side and drifted off. And it was then, after, when it uh, came out of the spin, the engine started. Oh, God, that's my concern, watching this wretched thing. Could you see Jeffrey coming down? No. Well, he, he moved well, to the side, or where I was, uh, somewhere he was not in my view, and I was only watching this aeroplane. After which I was most concerned about my, where was I going to arrive, pointing in which direction. And I still didn't see him, didn't know, except that he got out and parachuted open, so all's well as far as he was. Okay. Yeah. But when you got onto the ground, and you, as we know from the photographs, you went back and yeah. photographed it. You've no idea where Jeffrey was then? No. no. Except that he was down, uh, he yeah, was on the ground. He was okay, but he yes. didn't know where he yeah. was. No. Within I didn't know, no. No, there. not within sight or no. vision. Where was he, in fact? Uh, a bit nearer the lower Luton Road than I was. The story he, is he went in the puddle. Uh, uh, yeah, but he, uh, I having looked at the wreckage and taken the photo, then bundled up my parachute and walked across the field to where just where Lama Lodge is, in fact. And I stopped the passing motorist and said, are you going to Lemsford uh, or the Cricket Chimney? Uh, that was the pub. Because I was quite 
tear in our minds that Jeffrey, wherever he'd come down, would go there, because we used to lunch there, you see, as well, and um, uh, I was absolutely right, because by the time I was taken there by the passing motorist who kindly stopped and drove me there, Jeffrey was already in there. At the bar? Uh, well, yes, and uh, I think um, he'd already spoken to Hatfield, or one or two people came pretty quickly from Hatfield, and we were together there. <laughs> but there was no real interest in, there were no police, or no one came up, um, the aeroplane comes out of the sky, burns, and uh, no fire, police, or any excitement at all, and able to bundle up my parachute under my arm and walk off and get into a car. What do you think? What a world. Why were the two of you testing that day? Was it because of... Well, because it was the first production aeroplane, and it was my first production aeroplane of the Moth Minor vintage. And I, before passing it off for its um, C of A, I was determined that I, being the new boy, the junior pilot, that Jeffrey should fly this aeroplane rather than just leave it to me. And I persuaded him that he must do a flight on the acceptance of the first production aeroplane. Double check the order. Yes, uh, have his uh, approval. Yeah, I see. So you went he, through various maneuvers. And yeah, well, it's particularly, uh, he said, well, what's outstanding? And I said, well, we've still got the uh, RCG aerobatics and spinning. He said, oh, all right, well, then, uh, you come with me, you've done the earlier flights, and save putting too much ballast in the whole thing to get it correctly ballasted. So you come with me, and uh, that was it. And I'd achieved what I wanted, which was for Jeffrey to fly and approve the aeroplane. Obviously the aeroplane had to be modified. It was, yes. It had um, a bigger rudder area beneath the tailplane, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it had strakes on it, later ones. Anyway, work was done mainly to the rudder area beneath the tailplane. It was quite increased. It had got apparently slightly less rudder travel than the prototypes, which had been totally successful in their spinning. The three prototypes, all of which had had tail recovery shoots. So nearly a premature end to a rather distinguished subsequent career, haven't it? Well, I didn't know. So as you see, aeroplanes and spinning had always been rather doubtful sort of things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> you were the first, and I believe still are the only, RAF squadron pilot to have been let loose upon manufacturers. And oh yes. Before Boscombe. Yes. This was, this was the unusual set of circumstances in which you had been the de Havilland test pilot before the war. Yes. Uh, Geoffrey, Sir Geoffrey, as he became, knew Sir Charles Portal yes. to the air staff. And either Sir Geoffrey wanted or Portal wanted a, an assessment made. No, Sir Geoffrey. Sir Geoffrey. Yeah. This was the end of 1940. Now, the Mosquito had just flown in November 
40. I had had success in the bow fighter at night, in the middle of 1940, and I had two more in early December, I think, so that by late December, Sir Geoffrey approached the chief of the air staff to have me go and fly the mosquito to see if the Havilands, or if I thought the mosquito development as a night fighter would be a suitable aeroplane to develop. So he wanted me to fly it. And it was then that he approached me to go and see Portal. He wanted... Shotto Douglas just said, he rang me and said, Look, John, the chief of the air staff wants to talk to you. I assumed about the bow fighter activity I'd been involved in because I had the first successes at night. And when I went to see him, Portal, which was in January 1941, he said, You may wonder why I want to see you. He said, You're former employer has asked me to allow you to go and fly his new aeroplane. He wants to know whether your reaction to it and perhaps it could it be worth developing as a night fighter. And that's the first I knew that the age had done just that. And uh, Portal said, when you go back to Middlewallop where I was with both fighters, you contact Hatfield and uh, please go and fly his new aeroplane. So I went and then flew it in January or February 40. W405. Yeah, 41. Well, you took a bowfighter into Hatfield. Yeah, I, yes, I rang Hatfield and uh, said, no, yes, I'd love to come and fly your new aeroplane. And I took a bowfighter up there. And I think that was, I got a date in the long book, uh, January did, did Jeffrey go up with you in the... Uh, no, he didn't. I said, now, let me sit in this aeroplane and see where things are. And I think it'd be wise for me to have who's flown with you. And he had one or two people from Hatfield. This chap, Tony Arthur, his name was, pig leg. He had a wooden leg. I got started, took the aerotaxid out and went off grass, of course, Hatfield in those days. And I went off in the direction of St. Albans, the usual two-fourth direction. And as soon as I got off the ground, and to put the wheels up, you had to have the airplane more or less in trim, but put your hand onto the controls and select the undercarriage. Well, as soon as I took my hand off the throttle, I tightened this friction nut as far as I could, uh, and it was normally very tight. One of the throttles came back as soon as I took my hand off to change, and the aeroplane wasn't in correct takeoff trim. Jeffrey said, well, it's approximately here. You will find it when you get there. So that I couldn't re-trim it. I had to put my hand straight back on here. And because it wasn't in trim, I couldn't take my hand off the control. So I wanted to select the wheels up, apart from holding the throttle in. And I had to put my knees, I remember, and get them to jam the controls so they held them long enough for me to 
sight as hard as I could, stretched enough, and then select. So I went off. For some minute or so, the wheels were still down, or longer. I think people thought, must have thought, what the hell's going on there? Anyway, we did the flight, and all was well and fine, marvellous. And when I came down, Jeffrey naturally came to me. He said, well, did you enjoy it? I said, yes, I did enjoy it, but your throttle appalling, it came back on takeoff. He said, ah, I meant to tell you. <laughs> the, uh, the action nut was appalling, and it was very bad. I meant to tell you that it, it would come back unless it was absolutely jammed tight. I put it through its paces, didn't you? No, I flew it as I would fly a new aeroplane, and um, to me, it was superb, because the bow fighter had radar operate at the back, and I said, this mosquito, as long as it uh, has the radar set in the front and the radar operator beside it, it ideal, which of course it was, and it became. But to fly, was it a revelation? Oh, lovely, after yeah, it was lovely, lovely flying aeroplane, yes, and of course it went about a hundred miles an hour faster than the boat fighter. So you uh, must have had... Oh, I said straight away, there's no shadow of doubt that this is a wonderful development. And how long did you have to stick with a bow fighter before you got your hands on a mosquito? Oh, mosquito? I didn't get the mosquitoes well, until 19, end of January 1943. This was in time, in 1941, yeah. Long time to wait. Yeah, but um, the bow fighter was a wonderful machine and did its work very well. But the first mosquitoes went into squadron service, I think, night fighter work, in late 41, I think. So that uh, defeated Boscombe. <laughs> <laughs> How did you like the Trident, which was the very ambitious, advanced transport aircraft, wasn't it? A very fine flying machine. Was Trident uh, was and still is, not the many any going. And those pilots who flew Tridents were well aware of it being a, a pretty impressive aeroplane. Yeah. So you now, must have developed quite an intuitive feel for what the aeroplane was. Well, it was the response of the aeroplane to me on its nearness to the pitch-up, which, well, one got so busy pushing the stick forward as quickly as you could when you reach that moment. And then, presumably, sometimes, you had the stick fully formed, and the thing would just hang there. No, I you, never hung there. You never it No, never there. otherwise that, that would have been the end. No, right, I mean, it would eventually come down, but oh, it takes its time to come down. Uh, yeah, but the thing was to counter it before it, uh, as soon as you were aware that there was mm. a tendency to pitch up. Straight forward. Okay, I suppose for you who's flying it, not yeah. so nice for the people in the back who... Well, that's their test, that their test, job. Their test crew, they, they flown, well, uh, most of them flew with me all uh, through all this exercise over many, many times. They had faith, they in, had faith uh, in me or under the system and Pete Bouguer, who equally experienced with me a vast amount of this. 
And you did a lot on the comic too, didn't you? Yes, indeed. Your job was one of making the right decisions in moments of interest. Yes. Uh, the fact that you're sitting there means that you made pretty well mostly right decisions. Are there any yes. decisions, with hindsight, sitting in the armchair, that you would have done differently, or should have done differently, being very self-critical? No, I don't think so. I don't have any regrets or wishes that I had done something different, I think. No. No, because I, and it came to decisions after usually a great deal of time and effort, seeing what the problem is. The other thing about your test flying and the de Havilland Company was the sheer sort of versatility of the aeroplanes that were on test. I remember yes. when I was in the tech school, there were, I think it was eight different types of aircraft on test at one airfield. Maybe there were a couple down at Christchurch or something. Yes. You looked out of your window and you must have thought, Christ, I'm responsible for that, 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 that. And managing all the pilots and their testing and all the flight yes. crews and so on. <laughs> yes. And there was the, the Comet, there was the Darwinitz developments, the Helen, yes. the Vampire yes. trainer night fighters, the Venoms, the Sea Venoms, the 110, yes. the Heron, the Ambassador, the Pleiades Beaver. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's nine. And that was all in 1950? Yes. I mean, did you ever feel, God, I need an aspirin? No, I was well uh, supported by an enthusiastic team of pilots, aerodynamics and people in the factory. No, it was all part of that was the job. And the 108? Oh, yes, yes. Well, it was all needed a great deal of time and energy and thought. Yes, but there was always some good object and something to achieve on them. Uh, it was advanced, really, steps forward the whole time. But dealing with all these brilliant people in the mm. design office, some of whom were, shall we say, easier than others, that must have taken up quite a lot of your life. I was well supported, really, by all the people. I had no problems with them. If I had a doubt or something, they would remove that doubt, hopefully, or mm. answer my questions. They never asked you to accept something that you didn't want to no. accept. No, 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 and it was always left to me to decide what I was to do, uh, what I would do. You were never ordered to? Never. It was left to me entirely. And that was one thing, I suppose, that's outstanding, that uh, I never had anyone in the organization who said to me, you must do this, that, or the other. It was left to me entirely, right from the earliest days, really, the flying side. Did it ever happen that when they, I was thinking of the 110 with the rudder locked, somebody would say, can you fly it with this locked, or can you do this? And you would say, no, I really don't think that's a very safe thing to do, I won't do it. Did no, they? if it was all in a good cause, which it always was, and it was something that I could do or manage, and a risk that is worth taking, I said yes. But did you ever have to say no? 
I don't think I did. No. No, you see, I was really never asked to do anything that was totally stupid or impossible. If it was, I'd say so, but um, people didn't argue or they left it entirely to me. So I was enormously helped, really, by that, being left alone. Well, thank you very much, John. There are millions more questions.